Patrick Friedman is a former Google engineer and founder of the Seasteading Institute, a small nonprofit whose mission is to establish permanent autonomous ocean communities to enable experimentation and innovation with diverse social, political, and legal systems, which he created with help from Peter Thiel. He started Ephemeral, the largest self-organizing festival on water, and is on the board of the Startup Societies Foundation, also ran the Angel Fund Zarco Investment Group, and advises a variety of new governance projects. Patrick has a BS in math from Harvey Mudd College, an MS in CS from Stanford University, and an MBA from Cardian University. He used to play poker competitively and wrote one of the first online poker bots. He's a self-described anarcho-capitalist, transhumanist, and rationalist. He's also a prolific writer on philosophy, politics, and economics on Twitter, and the blog Let a Thousand Nations Bloom. Patrick comes from a line of great revolutionary thinkers. His grandfather, Milton Friedman, was the 1976 Nobel Laureate in Economics, and his father, David Friedman, is a well-known political theorist and legal scholar. Today we talked about poker, seasteading, and anarcho-capitalism. Hope you enjoy. Cool, shall we? Yeah. So before we get into seasteading, what got you into poker? You had a bit of a career in poker, right? Well, I don't know. I love playing games. It's a game you can play for money. You know, I'm a math stats right. probability guy. Yeah, I was always into board games and stuff. So I don't know. Yeah, only, a- only reason I ask is I've, I've had some of these conversations and I've talked to so many cool, really successful people. And I feel like there's just this huge overlap with poker playing. Have you found that at all or am I just seeing things? There's definitely some. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between like poker and finance, poker and investment. You know, it's a high pressure decision-making environment. Yeah, I don't think it's an accident. Plus it's fun. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of the downside is that it's like a non-productive activity, you know, with with occasional exceptions, like if you're generating entertainment on televised poker and something that like, it felt like working but really, really fun. Right. But ultimately, I think it's a great, I think it's a great entertainment, but it's ultimately like, it's not the same as working to build something that wouldn't exist without your work. Like it's inherently zero sum. Not necessarily zero sum and people may, people may enjoy playing and find it worthwhile, but they don't find it, like they would have more fun if worse players were there. Like (laughs) being a better player. That's fair. You don't make their experience better, you make it worse. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. I maybe I'll look more into into playing some poker. That might do me well. Anyway, let's let's talk about seasteading. You're basically backing the construction of floating cities. Is that right? Like, what's the basic elevator pitch that you give people? Yeah, I mean, although I, like I should say, like mostly, like the the last few years, I've been working with countries to do experimental governments on land. But yeah, I spent a lot of years, you know, the first ten years or something, working on seasteading. Because back in the early two thousands, when I had these ideas, I was like, well, why? Why is there no country I want to live in? Well, it's because it's this really poorly structured industry where the firms are very large. It's very expensive to switch and you can't start any new ones. Like there's no startups. Of course, there's no innovation and shitty products. So to fix this, we need startup countries. And at that time, countries on land were not willing to work with us. They weren't willing to do any kind of experimental governance. And so I was like, well, we need to open a new frontier. Like that's the way that we're going to get startup countries. And so we started looking into the, yeah, the engineering the business and the legal aspects of build cities on the ocean. It sounds like that's changed since then though, right? Like obviously I want to get into talking about building on water, but it sounds like you guys have had some sort of compliance on land. Yeah. So what happened was, okay, I started 
started the Seasteading Institute in like 2007, 2008. Although I started like writing a Seasteading book and giving talks in like the early 2000s before I got funding. And then in 2010, the country of Honduras changed their constitution and created this first program in the world for making these kind of semi-autonomous zones called Zetas. And so, you know, I've been thinking about leaving the Seasteading Institute to do a startup, like maybe we were looking into like medical tourism cruise ship as a venture, but then we decided to, yeah, to go work in Honduras. We got the first MOU with them, but then we, we were, we found out that they didn't actually have any staff or budget. And, you know, I'd assume that changing the constitution, political will would be the hard part, but it was clear it was going to take a long time and their Supreme court struck down the initial version of the program. And so we quit and gave back the money to investors and, you know, that was in 2012 and they didn't approve the first zone until like a couple of years ago and it launched last year. So, you know, it was going to be a while. Got it. So if we're talking about building on water, which it sounds like is what a lot of this started around, surely there's there's practical barriers, right, to building on the ocean. I'm sure we're talking about, just yes. so people are aware, building close to the shore maybe since weather probably poses an issue. Yeah, there's huge practical problems like on land. You know, you have this solid foundation and on the ocean, you got to float, you got to build it out of nothing. And you're on a surface that's moving up and down like crazy. You know, you can't anchor unless it's shallow. So it's very challenging and expensive. But, you know, you can see from like the cruise ship industry that you can deal with the ocean at a profit. People can live there for like at like reasonable daily rates, like it's doable with expertise and economies of scale. But yeah, it's it's very difficult. And I think you basically need shallow water. What's tricky is that if there's any land, like it, suppose you have like a seamount, an underwater mountain, if it goes above the surface of the water, then it's claimed by some country. So you need to find places where it's like shallow enough, you know, I don't know, 50 to 150 feet that you can like anchor or put in wave breaks, or maybe there's a reef that itself serves as a wave break, but yet not have anything that's above water. And there are some such places in the world. That's what you need. Okay. So we have those engineering challenges and obviously some price barriers. You've been working on in and around this space for a while. Have those improved as time has gone on? Well, there are the sea pods. So we have these people who starting a couple of years ago, they started building. Actually, it was like my original design, pretty close to it. What's called a, a spar platform where you have a single narrow pillar that gives you low cross-sectional area of the waves and then a platform on top. And they built one off Thailand and I don't know, he probably, he probably followed the news and saw, saw what happened. He got accused of a capital crime and hunted by the government and as he said was seized and destroyed. And they had hit out and made a daring escape by boat and got out and now they're in Panama, but now they're manufacturing sea pods. So you can actually go buy one now. Also. Since 2008, the ship market has kind of crashed because, you know, ships were like overbuilt and there was a global recession. And so you've been able to get ships at scrap prices for the last 13 years. So a few people like the Ocean Builders guys tried getting one, but they couldn't get it insured. Brock Pierce is getting some ships now. There's like a few people working on it. So I think that's like a viable approach because like you get the entire like form of a ship and like construction costs and everything for free. You're basically just like paying for the steel. Right. So, you know, I, I talked to Mark Lutter about charter cities not too long ago, and there seemed to be 
yeah, quite a few similarities. Oh, cool. I mean, aside from the obvious fact that you're building on water, they seem pretty similar. What's the big advantage there for building on water? Well, the big, the, the big advantage was the legal environment in the sense that the way admiralty law works is that if you're a moving object and you're on some kind of trip that goes to multiple countries or you're just out there past 12 nautical miles, basically, you're, you are regulated by your flagging state, which is a virtual association via ship registry. And there's a sense in which it is truly competitive governance. It's almost like, it's like, I guess it's not quite like anarcho-capitalism, but like, it's like having franchise sovereignty where you like, every country in the world is competing to like be the one to delegate sovereignty to you. So it's this like incredible competitive system. Uh, and because ships are mobile, like you can like change it. You could like be, reg be regulated by the Bahamas this year and be regulated by Panama next year. So this really amazing legal environment, like a lot of people hear about my work and they think that I'm saying like, the high seas are a free for all. You can like just go there and be free. It's like an urban legend that's out there. You'll see like on the Simpsons or something, just like, oh, we're on the high seas, no one can touch us. And that's not true at all. But what is true is that like the actual legal environment is one that's like incredibly competitive and really like suited to this, you know, this world that we want to see, but it's much more difficult and expensive. There aren't people living there. So like people are going to have to move out to the middle of nowhere if they want to do it. And it's just a lot harder. And now that, you know, countries are willing to do governance experiments on land, that's my focus. But you know, I'm still excited about the ocean builders, sea pods and the sea thing too is like talking to a number of countries about doing like a custom seastead flag where they specifically say, here's what's ours and here's what's yours. Like, here's what you get to make laws for. Like, here's the interface. I think that would be pretty awesome. That's really cool. One thing I wanted to ask is seasteading mentions rising sea levels as one among many reasons for seasteading to happen, right? Are we assuming climate change and significant sea level rise is irreversible here? I mean, I don't think seasteading depends on it at all. Not I mean, at all. Obviously, the more of the world that's like water, the better for seasteading. And, you know, it's potentially a tool for populations that are going to be displaced. Like maybe you can use seasteads or build platforms on a drowning island or something and elevate the population above the waves. But it's really, it's, it's not particularly dependent on it. The other thing is just sort of the modularity that you get with seasteading and even a lot of the stuff that you might be doing now on land. One thing that's really intriguing is this sort of increased autonomy that you get or even an ability to like secede from a centralized government. How does that really play in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited about that, but I'm not sure, you know, it's not clear to me that it's worth like the cost. Sure. I think, you know, I'd say my current kind of prediction is like, that will be really powerful, the ability to vote with your house. But I think that we're probably more likely to see that in space colonies, like not, you know, not like Mars, but like, like free floating ones, asteroid belt, places like that, that will actually get this kind of modularity, because it's even easier to unhook and move things in space. So if we're able to go there and make it economically feasible, I think you'll get that what I call dynamic geography. So, I mean, as far as laws go, how does all of this change? It seems like you've got sort of two things you're playing with right now. One is, correct me if I'm wrong here, like sidestepping reform in some way by doing seasteading or cooperating with the centralized government by doing a lot of this stuff on land. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, pretty much all land is claimed by some sort of central government. What's the play on either of yeah. those? I mean, I I wouldn't say that we're, <clears throat> that we're sidestepping. It's kind of like a common belief, like 
the way admiralty law works is you have to register with some country you plug into international law through them you're franchising their sovereignty what's different about it is that any you know any ship can with any country and then they can like change that registration annually so it's this competitive market whereas on land if you pick like one one specific place where you're building like you're making a deal with one government and like yeah maybe you can get governments competing with each other at the beginning but then like once you deploy your capital you have your community it's like stuck in one place so you know that's a disadvantage but it's made up for by the much lower capital costs got it so talk a little bit about ephemeral are you guys still doing that i mean the san francisco chronicle I read, yeah it's, it's hilarious it's the san francisco chronicle calls it burning man on boats but i'm, I'm sure there's a lot more behind how all this happens yeah, I actually, I had the idea for ephemeral like first, like when I first started getting into seasteading, I was like, well, if we're going to try to get people to like live free on the ocean, like it'll be a lot easier to get people to go there for a week than to get them to like move there. So what if we started out with some kind of like, like raft up where like for a week every year people went and actually like, like had different laws, right. And had different laws on different islands and tested out like new legal systems for a week. But, you know, doing that kind of thing offshore, very difficult for the same reason seasteading is difficult. So we decided to start out in the Sacramento Delta, which is this kind of, you know, boating recreation region near the Bay Area. And the first year it was run by the Seasteading Institute in 2009, but like we weren't able to get insurance. And we started in 2010, trying to get insurance really early. Maritime insurance is very difficult because there's like laws that make liability uncapped. And so like there were like fewer insurers kept dropping out. Eventually it was like only Lloyd's of London. And like, it was like $500 a person, $1,000 a person, like, you know, for a week event. And we were just like, this is just like cost prohibitive. So we like canceled the event and kind of conveniently immediately after we posted the cancellation, some friends of ours posted that, uh, they were going to have the same event in the same place, just without any Seasteading Institute sponsorship. Hmm. So it was completely community-driven, and it's been community-driven ever since. That's awesome. So I want to get back to just sort of the fundamental like beliefs here when it comes to regulation. I mean, this sounds a lot of what you're talking about sounds like what Mark was talking about when I spoke with him about charter cities. But I mean, do you basically think? governance is too deeply entrenched to make any meaningful headway? Is it like better to just wipe the slate clean and start from scratch? Or is there another way around it? Well, I mean, it depends on the country. You know, the smaller the country, the easier it is to rewrite things. And, you know, but like as a software engineer, like you can only get so far by like patching code, like to get real progress every sure. now and then you need to like use the latest technologies and do a clean rewrite with everything that you've learned. And like, at Google, we would rewrite stuff every, I don't know, three to five years. I hear at Facebook, they would like rewrite things like every 18 months. Like, so that's just like a whole different world of, you know, of innovation. And so, yeah, I think that like when you have a huge system that like a lot of people are running and depend on for basic things like property rights and physical safety and things like that, people are correctly very nervous about messing with it. And governments and politicians tend to be very, very conservative. They don't want to like adopt crazy new laws and they probably shouldn't for everyone. But like we need that, that test bed, like that lab where we are rewriting things and then trying them on a small group of volunteers. And then if they work, scaling them up, <clears throat> you know, to a region 
And if that works, maybe scaling it up to a bigger region so that we also get innovation. And, you know, like I got lots of friends that try to get laws passed and stuff. And, you know, on the margin, you can have some impact that way. But I think that, yeah, in most cases, we're at the point where we could really use some rewrites. So coming at this from a different angle, we have Pronomus, which is your venture fund, right? How did that come about? Is it just yeah. sort of to back a lot of these ideas that Seasteading was putting forward? Yeah, yeah. so Pronomus is specifically backing charter cities, real estate developments that come with deep regulatory reforms. And yeah, it's just a combination of the number of investors and founders, you know, kind of as my ideas were out there. And we had people, had people in, who were like in high school when I was doing seasteading stuff and now are running like billion dollar companies. And they're like, hey man, when can I get my like startup country? And so like the ideas had just compounded and got into a much bigger group of people. Crypto gave a lot of wealth to people who think in terms of private decentralized alternatives to the state. And then states were really changing, especially small states. Look at Estonia's e-governance, you know, or, or Taiwan. Small countries are, are realizing like, Hey, we actually, there's, there, there are large diseconomies of scale in government and, you know, being small and responsive to our citizens, like enables us to innovate and get advantages for our country and countries are just much more open to this kind of thing. I think the success of SEZs in China or the Dubai International Financial Center, there were just a whole bunch of factors that made countries kind of more receptive. And so it was clear that, you know, what I'd worked on in Honduras in 2011, 2012 could now actually kind of be done and probably be done in like multiple places by multiple companies. And so I thought it would kind of be the most fun, the most useful to work across all the companies rather than trying to do one myself. And so I serve kind of as a bridge between investors and Silicon Valley and the world of charter cities. You know, I think it's, it's probably fair to say you're doing some pretty cool stuff when grandson of Milton Friedman isn't even like the first 10 things people think about when it comes to you. That said, it seems like some of those Thanks. like libertarian. Yeah, right. I have to work on something big enough yeah. that that will be true. And I'm just lucky I found something that I liked and that I got traction on because I feel like I could very easily have just like tried to do big, big, crazy things that didn't work again and again. Yeah. But I got lucky, found something that worked. Do you think those like libertarian ideals were passed on at all? Was that something you sort of grew up around? Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I think some of it, honestly, I think some of it was like genetics. So like I grew up with my mom, I spent summers with my dad, but like I would just find myself like, just like arguing for libertarian positions with my classmates. But like, I didn't <laughs> even, like even before I'd ever even heard of the libertarian party, right. I just have like pretty straight libertarian moral intuitions about what's right and wrong. So yeah, definitely. You know, and also the like political philosophy and economic thinking is a big part of it too. How would you sum up your politics? I, I you know, in doing the research beforehand, you're sort of described as an anarcho-capitalist. And to be honest, I think anytime anarcho is put before something, it hmm. can like be a little spooky for people. But firstly, would you agree yeah. with that? And secondly, how would you sum up the views? Mm -hmm. Because you, you sort of differ from in, in ways from what people might call yeah. a run-of-the-mill libertarian. Yes, I, I have my own political philosophy. Yeah. And essentially it differentiates between like what I as a customer want. I think like standard libertarians, they say we're talking about right and wrong. And the country has to implement what's right and enforce the, the laws that are that are fair, etc. And me, I just say lots of people have different ideas about what rights are and how to balance them. 
about it's it's very difficult. Like you can't just take a set of rights and like enshrine that into law. So you know, my dad studies the economic analysis of law, and we have like pretty clear mathematical. So it's sort of an overdetermined like you know because there's there's detection costs and punishment costs and courts get things wrong sometimes. Like we we have we don't know how to create institutions that create a certain set of rights as output. It's kind of like if you said like, hey, I want a, I want a battery powered car that like, you know, can charge up in five minutes on like the sunlight and go like super fast and go super long and it's super safe. Like, like you can say those words, but they do not constitute like any kind of blueprint and what you're describing may not even be possible. So, you know, that's, I kind of think about it as like, we have our preferences as customers rather than as like right and wrong and like turning a desired type of society into laws and institutions that create that is extremely hard. And so, you know, I want to live in a libertarian country because that's my personal consumer preferences, but I don't consider it some kind of moral standard. And I'm fine with lots of other people having lots of other kinds of societies they want to live in. I just want to see a world where people can start more types of society, test out laws and institutions in practice, like view governance as much more of an engineering problem than a philosophy problem. You know, it's about tinkering with institutions and building cultures and create a system where you get kind of innovation and progress because you're doing this experimentation in you know, technology. And then, you know, maybe that system will produce, you know, a society that does much better on like what I think the outputs ought to be. And that would be great. Maybe it produces a totally different society. It's compelling to me. Like what matters is just that you're producing a bunch of societies optimizing them through competition. You're also a self-described rationalist and transhumanist. So to close us out, I thought it'd be fun to talk about those. I, I actually have one of these chats planned with a guy named Zoltan Istvan in a while who's very much involved in the whole I know Zoltan. transhumanism thing. So what's the draw for you there? What does that look like? Sure. I mean, you know, rationalism, uh, it's, it's just the idea of trying to like actually understand the world around you, of being humble about how many cognitive biases we have and how kind of unnatural it is for to think clearly and, you know, just caring about really understanding the world and your own cognitive biases and trying to get things right. Transhumanism, I think, I find the idea of like self-modification to be incredibly empowering. I think that, you know, upgrading ourselves with technology is, is not very easy, but some, I don't know, something like LASIK or even getting a tattoo, sure. just like being it like, I don't know, I think video games or something like being able to upgrade yourself, like make yourself better, make yourself stronger is like, is incredible. And we don't have very many ways to do it very well. So it's not like, I think that, you know, everybody should be out there getting tons of modifications because we really have very few. But the general idea that like, we should be using technology to make ourselves, you know, faster, stronger, happier, et cetera. Like, not just accepting the way that nature bred us. I think it's incredible. That's awesome. Man, time just flew and you've been getting a workout the whole time. You've, what, what are you on? Are you on like a, like a treadmill or something? Elliptical, yeah. Oh, there you go. I had shoulder surgery like a, a few weeks ago and I spent a lot of time in bed. And, got it. you know, I just got like so weak to where like, you know, even just like walking around or like carrying a bag or something is hard. So this week I'm really trying to, you know, get some exercise in every day so I can, you, like, go. you know, be a person who can like run and right, right. carry things and stuff like I used to. Well, thank you, man. It was a pleasure talking. I appreciate the time, really.
Awesome. Yeah, this was fun. All right. Cool. Have a good one. Hey, you too. Bye. Bye.